Cody, hi. Good to see hey, you. It's great to see you, mate. It's great to see you. It's been too long. It has. And I was reflecting on when we when we first met, and, and Jeff posted a picture of um, of, of Edinburgh, and um, and actually I'll I'll, sh- I'll reshare the uh, the video of you talking because it's a very cool event. It was, yeah, very cool. Great location. I, I still have all the photos on my phone. I look back on it uh, fondly, and uh, a very enjoyable dinner that we had afterwards as well. Very fun. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so maybe we, we sort of steer off, off the back of that because that's how I found out about you and your, your work and we've kept in touch since. And that's probably been, what, a year and a half, two years? Yeah, a year and a half, I'd say. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you kindly had me on your podcast with, uh, with Steve Rolnick and that was, that was good fun. Yeah, that seems, that seems ages ago. Um, but look, let's let's just plow into something here because you know, to to me, when I see your work, you're I, I think of you as a as a coach of coaches. So I know you coach, but you you also offer all these insights and ideas, and you've got your great podcast where you talk to some really fascinating people about coaching and and, and other things. So what what do you love about coaching? Jeez, we're just going to go straight, straight forward, are we? What do I love about coaching? Um, <laughs> no, for me, I was reflecting on this recently, actually. One of the great things about, well, this sounds weird, but one of the great things about COVID has been the time to reflect for a lot of people and, and really like deep reflection. You know, there's, you know, especially in those early lockdown days where there's a lot of staring off into the sky. And that was one of the things I was reflecting on was yeah what is it that that i enjoyed about it and initially for me coaching was about solving the problem of my game in an intellectual way so aussie rules is my game uh the afl um played it essentially my whole life and and it kind of started there but then once i really got into the nitty-gritty of coaching and this is why i share so much online is because I started to just become fascinated with how and why groups of people do things. And so, yes, that is what happens in an Aussie rules game. A group of people goes and does something and they play against another group of people that are also trying to do something. Uh, but it extends to the, the countries that we live in, the, the organisations that we work in. And so that's kind of what fuels me is this interest in human behavior but less so the individual element of it and more so the group element when there's a group dynamic or a team dynamic how do all those pieces fit together and then obviously part of that is leadership but yeah the the real crux of it is the group dynamic who falls into what role who takes charge who takes a back seat what's the communication like that stuff just absolutely fascinates me and it's all around us yeah yeah okay and and so in that sense where within the group then where where does the coach fit in well this is the fascinating thing is that everyone has an opinion on this based on their own experience but it can be anywhere like uh, we've kind of what i would caution against immediately is this idea that there is one singular path to coaching success um a a reality is is that the what we call traditional like the hierarchical command and control style of leadership honestly it still does actually work you can use that if you want it is a a tool Um, there are still coaches like that and there are still coaches like that that are quite successful Um, my way or the highway you know these are the rules here's how we're going to do and very rigid Uh, there is also examples on the other side of the spectrum where it's uh, what you'd call more laissez-faire and and a coach is actually involved and down you know in in the trenches with the players and um, you know, more human centered. And so it's, it's a, it's a whole kind of sliding scale and where I've landed on this. And I talked about this in my first book was, I think, um, having like a style of leadership is 
uh, not necessarily the best way. I think you need to master all of the, the places along the pendulum um, so that you can use them when you need. You can be in there in the trenches when you need, but you also can, can use the stick right when the carrot's not working. Uh, I think that's more effective is, is having kind of all of them in your toolbox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you, I mean, what, what's the size of a squad in, in Aussie rules? How many, how many, we how carry many about, people are you managing? We carry about 50 on our roster. And we'll usually travel with 30. So, and depending on the rules, 24 of those would be in a match day squad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that, that's a lot of people with, you know, unique backgrounds. So when you think about it, you know, each coach is going to bring, you know, a, probably a dominant style. But then do you think then they, they need that flexibility then? Because if they're the, the autocrat, right, these are my rules and this is what has to happen. Otherwise, kind of you're, you're out or, or sidelined. You know, what about the more sensitive people? Because, you know, undoubtedly there are, you know, sensitive people within each, each group. They may not show it but they'll be there. Yeah. I think the, it also depends on the role of the coach. So my role is to look at the team dynamics more so than working one-on-one -on -one with, you know, skill development and player development. That's more so for my assistants. And so, yeah, they also bring their own way of doing that with the players. And then, you know, from a team dynamics perspective, yeah, I think you need to be able to, to be a head coach, you need to be able to swing between all those different, different ways of doing things. And then the other thing, and Eddie Jones talks about this a lot is, and this is why I think that flexibility is important is because it also depends on the maturity of the team. You don't coach a young team the same way that you coach a more mature team. Uh, you know, a, a younger team that either young by age or they've just come together, you will be a little bit more authoritative with from a, a team perspective. Like this is how it has to be. And this is the quality that we need to get to and that we expect. And then you go through that journey with them. And as they start to mature both together and as individuals, as players, you start to give them the control and allow them to run training sessions and, and get involved in their own development. And so yeah, that's what I mean about that flexibility is, yes, there's always going to be the, the players that respond to, you know, rules and regulations and this is how it's done. There's also going to be your more kind of emotionally driven players. Mm. But again, going back to my first boy, that's what's fascinating about it is because there are so many different ways to do it and ways to attack the problem and ways to bring people together. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, again, I, I just caution of there being one way. There's, uh, I can't find a discipline where there's just one way of doing things. And I don't, and leadership certainly is not one of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned leadership and, and some people will be then thinking about leadership with, within the workplace. And I know you like to draw the parallels and that, that seemed to be, you know, your first kind of major bit of work, if you like, seemed to be, doing that do you what are the kind of major parallels that you see between sport and and the workplace yeah well at the root cause it's it's that idea of how do groups of people do things and so the if you focus on that you know the outcome whether you're trying to score a goal or a try versus you're trying to produce a product uh, ultimately it's you get a group of people together and you try to organize them and utilize their skills to achieve that. So, you know, at that root level, there's really no difference um, between business and sport. And so, yeah, I spent, geez, probably five years beating that drum and, and working on that and, and trying to translate the real lessons from sport for business leaders because they were quite misguided for a long time. And it was often just, and I think we talked about this when we first met is it's often just sports often treated as a just motivational category, you know, bring the, bring the premier league player in or bring the quarterback in for a, a keynote presentation. And that's going to motivate our, our staff to go and build the next iPhone. 
And they're not the real lessons. It's how do you recruit? How do you bring people into your culture? How do you build that culture? How do you lead that group of individuals with all their different backgrounds and skills and developing skills and uh, power dynamics and all of these things? How do you bring that together? Um, And then, yeah, how do you focus on performance? And the great thing about sport is that for as long as, as it's existed, team sports is they've just been human focused. The only thing you can ever do is put a group of people out on the field and try to organize them and utilize their skills. Uh, And so there's, you know, centuries of ideas that have been quality tested and that we can actually plug into. And I'll be frank with you, Richmond motivation is not one of them. I, I, I honestly don't believe that. I think that's, so low on the totem pole of things that businesses can learn or business leaders can learn from sport that um, it's, it's almost not worth focusing on at all. Yeah. Okay. I mean, if, if you were, you know, if you, if you were faced with a, with a business leader right now, who said, right, you know, what, what are the top three most important things I need to consider? Have you got a, have you got a top three at the moment? <laughs> uh, yeah, so, sure. I mean, the, the first one would be that um, recruitment is the most underutilized tool in business. Um, so, you know, everyone wants to talk about their culture and their great culture, but, you know, and how different they are and how different their business is. But then you go on LinkedIn and every single company on the face of the planet uses exactly the same job description. So your first interaction with, these talented people that they are going to create the iPhone for you. It doesn't magically appear like they are going to create it for you. Your interaction with them, your first interaction with them is exactly the same as every other company on the face of the planet. Mm. Now that, that creates a huge opportunity for organizations to really think through that process. How are we identifying talent out in the marketplace and bringing them in so they can be part of our culture? Um, the second would be the, the knock-on effect to that, which is the culture. So the cultivation of the culture itself. Most organizations think they have one, but they very rarely do, particularly the big organizations. What they actually have is a collection of subcultures. And traditionally what business has done has been try to destroy those subcultures. So you think about a really basic example on a, on a floor in an office building when, when, when all the, the men are around the water cooler talking about the NBA game the night before, we try to break that up because we don't want them to, to chit-chat or, you know, the, the, the lunch ladies, you know, in the, in the lunchroom. We try to break that up. But if, if we're looking at it from a team perspective is those are centres of influence and they present opportunities for us to understand who leaders are within these microcultures. And we can actually start to use them to instill cult, the actual culture that we want yeah. rather than trying to break up these little social groups. People want to work with people that they like. And so the water cooler talk is people that they like. They have something in common. Yeah. And so we can use those little things um, to really instill our culture rather than trying to break people up who are friends with each other. Like that, that is just bizarre to me. (laughs) We do our best work with people that we like and people that we're friends with. Um, And, uh, you know, if I, if I were to say a third, I would be, and this is what I've been focusing on more recently is pretty much every problem that you have as a leader, the problem is you. And no one ever says this uh, because it's a touchy subject, but uh, I've just spent, the last year really looking at this from a head coaching perspective is if you really want to trace it back, it's not the motivation of your people. It's not lazy people. It's not this, it's not that. If you want something as a leader, like you are the blockage. And so there's really big opportunities for leaders to upgrade their own skills to get better results out of the teams. Um, So 
yeah, th- those would be the three. It's like recruitment, the the focus on the culture, and then you as the leader. Like you are the core piece to the the whole thing and how it operates. Yeah, and and so that that last bit of work you mentioned there for last year is is that the because you've got a new book coming out, haven't you? I do. Yeah, yeah. It's been my my COVID baby. <laughs> um, so is that is that what you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I've spent the last year kind of interviewing and and really looking at what is well, the book is called The Tough Stuff, and it's pretty self-explanatory. Like, what is the tough stuff as a leader? And you know, it, it boils down to these yeah these kind of emotional elements that we very rarely talk about. We you know, in sport, we just endlessly talk about tactics, and it's so off base as like everyone has tactics like Guardiola's tactics aren't better than mine like it's 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 how you make them all fit together the players you have access to all these different stuff um what actually really hampers leaders is yeah the emotional toll the weight of all the decision making the the weight of all the emotional things that are going on um and so yeah, when you start to dig into it, you realize that there's there's a lot of things that we can control as leaders and coaches, and uh, we've just been overlooking them for far too long, and it's probably time that we started to address them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I guess then, you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, the more emotional side of things, which which a lot of people find tricky and, and really that's social conditioning you know they've been conditioned to look at life in a particular way they've got a set of beliefs which they've brought forward into into what they do and, and perhaps there's been some value for that and it's delivered some results to reach you know high levels in in a business um so how how's that received so when you sort of bring up the emotional side of things how, how do people respond to that Well, it's that social conditioning again. The the response is like we we're not going to talk about this, and this isn't a problem, and I don't need help. Um, whereas what I've seen and what I saw at particularly at the start of COVID, you know, when everything was locked down and every sport was on hold, I was able to speak to a lot of the best head coaches in all the different sports all around the world have started calling people up and be like, Hey, are you doing okay? And the realization and the reason that I wrote a book about it is because it gave them time to stop and reflect and realize that they weren't doing well. And when they had nothing else to do and they didn't know if their league was ever going to start up again. And, you know, all these kind of all the, the emotions that they'd been carrying with them just came flooding out. And so, you know, I I, I was really lucky. I I guess I I have some trust in that space and people told me things that um, they might not have otherwise said or not publicly said. Um, And I'm not going to share those things in the book, but the the themes are fairly consistent. and, And it's that, you know, the emotional toll, particularly of head coaches, but you can look at those like elite leaders, CEOs and army generals and things like that is there is an emotional toll there that needs to be dealt with and and you know this in your line of work and and particularly in pain and like what actually what pain actually is and how it manifests and how it creates all these other problems whether it's physically or whether it's emotionally or maybe together um is it becomes a real problem and um particularly for head coaches in elite sport like this just never gets talked about um all the lessons get passed on to the players and then the coaches just go about it and it's the same thing right it's what i said at the start we're not going to talk about this i'm fine go away we're just going to get on with it yeah yeah i mean that's that's interesting isn't it and you know in a sense you know great that you you know you were able to hear you know some truths some you know which they were happy to share with you testament to you and your approach. Um, would you be happy to share the sort of how COVID affected you then as a, as a coach, what, what kind of toll it may have had on you? 
Yeah. Um, well, uh, I mean, I, I would probably go even further back than that. Like last year we had a, a player uh, die by suicide. Um, and this was in uh, February. Uh, so just before the lockdown. And so we had to deal with that as a team. Um, and yeah, I mean, it doesn't get much more emotionally taxing than that, yeah. quite frankly. Um, you know, we were working towards our, our international cup, which is our big triannual tournament in Australia was supposed to be in June. So we were a couple of months away from that. And so, you know, to have a player uh, who was well loved and, um, you know, a, a central social figure for our team, um, just removed from our team in that way, um, you know, from a leadership perspective was incredibly tough. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, and I've, I've written about this a little bit in the tough stuff is, you know, it, it kind of brought on a sense of imposter syndrome in that I didn't feel prepared to lead a bunch of 50 young men through the grieving process when I didn't really even know how to grieve myself. And so, you know, the answer for me was to reach out for help. And again, I was very lucky in that I had some people that would pick up my calls and just kind of talk me through it just from a third party perspective. Um, Cause the thing that struck me was just how people look to you for guidance on that like how do we grieve what do we do here you know that was kind of a common question amongst the the, the guys like what, what do we do how, how do we do this um and so you know i <laughs> it was a, a realization for me that yeah you know it's so much more than just teaching people football is you're really teaching life lessons and and you know these are the lessons that they can use the rest of their lives and, and it's better to get through it together. And that's what we ended up doing. The group came together really well and supported each other. And that included the players support of me. Yeah. Like that were great. Was, I had so many Facebook messages checking in on me and things like that. But yeah, I mean, this was even before COVID and then you kind of, again, you, you're grieving and you have endless time to think about it and just stew over it and and so yeah it's been a tough year in that sense or yeah. was a tough year last year in that sense yeah no, absolutely so that i mean that could well be the greatest challenge that, that well certainly the greatest challenge that you faced or, or one of and did did you did you have sort of professional help did you turn that way or was it just to your own network for for support Well, they're one and the same. So uh, again, I, I'm really lucky and, um, you know, someone that I've had on my podcast, um, Meg Popovic, who's the uh, director of athlete wellbeing and performance for the Toronto Maple Leafs, the NHL franchise here in town. Uh, she's a good friend of mine and, and obviously psychology background and, and helping athletes through their wellbeing. And obviously they deal with a lot of similar topics and, um, and things like that. So I was able to reach out to her and, and also um, her brother who's done some work in the space as well uh, and played in the NHL. And then also uh, Cameron Schwab, who was the CEO um, of three AFL teams in Australia. And, and um, you know, he's been through some pretty tough times himself and uh, yeah, just people that, you know, what I did was I, I wanted to seek out people that understood what it was to be a young leader like me. I'm, I'm 36. Um, and so, you know, not that life, not that age kind of correlates to anything in particular, but I just, I wanted someone who understood my particular role and that, you know, I did need to be um, a leader to 50 other young men in the space and that it wasn't just about me. But, uh, yeah, so I was really lucky in that I could call those people up and say, look, uh, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. I just need some help and I'm not doing well. And kind of get that, uh, yeah, the, the professional feedback side of it, but also the, you know, just be kind to yourself and kind of the, the little push that you need when you're often stuck. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, that, isn't that a great 
sort of example I'd, you know for people to hear that, that that you know you would seek help because others may not they they may think that they can't or or it's showing some sort of vulnerability or over you know the the stiff upper lip and i've got to get on with it and that that kind of thing whereas actually you know to to get that support seemed invaluable for you in in what you then had to do Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's good practice because it allows you to start to be able to put words to your feelings and things like that. Like, um, you know, I'm Australian and I, you know, us and the Brits are probably the worst at it in terms of that stiff upper lip things, like just get on with it. And it's, you know, it can be pretty ruthless. And so we were never taught to put words to our feelings or to be able to express them or to go and ask for help. And, um, you know, it's the cause of a lot of the issues that we have socially. Like if, I don't know how much people know about Australia, but we're in the midst of a, a, like, you know, epidemic proportion male suicide rate. Um, And this is before, before COVID, Um, like astronomical numbers. And, um, you know, if you, want to think that through you can point to the fact that it's like you have to keep everything inside you have to you can't talk about your emotions there's there's no way to turn even amongst your families and your close relationships it's always just get on with it and um you know i I think just that process of being able to go to someone and just say the word i need some help and then say here's how i'm feeling or here's how i think i'm feeling um is is great practice because Mm. once you get into the practice of it you start to have more conversations like that you start to recognize more feelings you you're able to describe them you're able to describe them more in in less um confronting environments it conditions other people to respond and say okay i need to stop here this person's not doing so well or they just need five minutes of my dedicated attention I can get off my phone. You know, it starts to create patterns in other people as well, which I think is really where the value is. So did, did you see a knock-on effect of that within your within your team with an openness? People probably responded in different ways initially, but but did it sort of create that, that opportunity for people to speak? I think so. Yeah, that seemed to be the you know, just going by, you know, a private Facebook group and the messages that people shared with me um, and, you know, stories that I've heard afterwards of people opening up, you know, on phone, on one-on-one phone calls with other players and things like that. Um, and and that's probably what I'm proudest of was how the, the boys reacted and supported and shared and, you know, said that they're not not doing well or, you know, that they have some other sort of, uh, you know, grief that they might be dealing with or issues that they might be dealing with. And so, yeah, but ultimately it's one thing to say that a lot of people say that they have, you know, we, we talk about psychological safety now and, and it's easy to say that you have it. But again, when you actually go and study a lot of groups, they don't have it. And, and I think we were able to genuinely create that within our group and that, uh, you know, I, I think our boys would say that they they felt okay to share and that you know i demonstrated that it was okay um myself and you know there's i've got the messages to (laughs) to prove it that to say like i I would just write on the facebook group like boys i'm having a bad day so i feel sad and you know again it's one of those things leaders need to show the way and and once they do then it starts to open up opportunities for others you can't just say you have psychological safety in your team and then not demonstrate that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How, how would you say then that that experience informs your, your coaching style and approach now? It certainly catapulted it down uh, the path that it was already heading on anyway. Um, You know, we, we didn't just have this, psychologically safe environment because we had a a death on our team Uh, we were already working on it and and trying to really dig into who our players were as individuals and what their 
backgrounds were and and what their social conditioning was and what their fears are and you know I see this as really the root of all performance it's it's great for us to set records at the squat bar and you know have all access to all this nutrition and blah 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 all the physical stuff the physical stuff's not at the forefront of performance it's the the mental side of things there's no squats without uh, the self-talk going on in your head um and so yeah we were already heading down that path and i think it's just continued to uh, yeah allow us to really get into who these guys are as individuals uh, who they want to be and help them along that journey ultimately that's all we're doing they're, they're football players at the moment uh, they won't be for much longer and they'll have you know, uh, if they retire at 35, they've got another 70 years of their lives to live. And so we can instill some, some great, you know, traits in them now and, and a sense of belonging in them now, but it's only for a short amount of time. And so, uh, yeah, it, the job is to teach them about themselves and give them the tools for their, their future. Yeah. It, it very much comes across as the, the the person first approach, which you know we've spoken about before, and you know that I think is is vital in in many fields. Um, and and in that you know you're wanting to prepare people for life, kind of using examples of what they're doing in their sport. So say they've got another five seven years before then there's going to be a you know a fairly major transition in their life and and how they're going to deal with that do you, do you work with players on sort of getting towards that that transition because of course there's also the the risk of injuries which could bring an early finish to a to a career and how one would deal with that yeah we don't necessarily have a, a plan for that um you know, for that transition for them, but it's something that we should really be working on for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, uh, was certainly difficult for me, uh, but I kind of, I was already into coaching and was able to transition kind of out of playing through coaching. But yeah, I think there's, uh, I think it affects a lot of people when they stop playing or their, their athletic endeavors change or go away after, you know, 20 years. Cause it is like, we've been talking about social conditioning. It's a form of social conditioning. You get used to obviously the, the physiological elements of the game and people, you know, fall in love or become addicted to the pain, you know, the pain in their muscles and that feeling after a game and all that sort of stuff. Um, which is why professional athletes tend to make comebacks. Uh, I think it, I think it's actually the pain, funnily enough, the pain in their muscles and the, the feeling after a game is what, what they are kind of addicted to. Yeah. Um, and then there's also, yeah, the, the, just the camaraderie and the being around the sport, um, which I still have through coaching, which is great. Um, but yeah, a lot of these guys will just transition into life and particularly North America, they might not play any sport ever again. Really? Yeah, it's just, it's not a, you know, the, the system here, there's no suburban leagues. There's no, you know, there's a little bit of pickup hockey and basketball, but it's a little bit um, all over the place. And, you know, there's no real club atmospheres like we have in, in the UK or, or in Australia. So, yeah, it's, it's bizarre to me personally, coming from my background. But, yeah, people might retire from playing footy here and never do anything athletic competitively again wow okay okay i suppose yeah that's going you know the the out at the beginning of the pod you were talking about you know the cultural aspects and there's a you know that's a strong player then isn't it if, if there's not the opportunity to to do that or you've got to find something else um to to fill your time with 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 meaning but you have the coaching so you know although you know maybe you didn't want to stop when you did um you you had something to go to which made it easier yeah i mean i my personal story is i i was a really good junior player um you know state representative at under 15 under 16 and under 18 level like the three levels that you can be and 
and then didn't get drafted into the AFL. And so, you know, I've kind of been on this journey for quite some time. I was in coaching at 22 or 23 because I kind of got the shits with not being drafted and not achieving my goal and kind of fell apart a little bit. Um, and coaching was what allowed me to fall in love with the game again. So it, yeah, it's, it's a little bit weird of a scenario in that, you know, I am 36 with 13 or 14 years of coaching experience. <laughs> um, so yeah, I've had that transition and uh, yeah, I, I mean, I still have those competitive elements that I love about the game. I love the smell of the grass when we you get to the ground. I love the sound of the whistle. You know, there's usually a game on, on the, on the, the oval when you when you show up and you get out of your car and you hear the whistle and you hear the yelling and the, uh, you know I, I love all those elements um, and still get them which is it's great yeah any frustration there there's sort of a desire to get on the pitch and play rather than coach no no I I was lucky you know I played over here for seven or eight years and you know, won a couple of uh, premierships with, you know, some great teammates and people that are still really close friends. And, uh, but I got to a point, you know, I'd been playing Aussie rules since I was I think, seven or eight and my body was just ready for a break. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I always said to myself, when, when you start fearing going into contests, stop playing mm. and, I got to a point where I feared going into contests. I didn't didn't want to get hurt, and when you ease off, is when you get hurt. You know, when you're going seventy five percent into a into an Aussie Rules contest, yeah. you know, um, you yeah, you not only are you going to hurt yourself, you'll hurt someone else. And so I, I knew it was my time. Yeah. And uh, now I just have the pleasure of everything aching when I go for a run when it's you know one or two degrees in in downtown Toronto, um, all the bones ache when you go for a run now. So it's because, you know, Aussie rules, um, you know, I've watched a little bit and it's got to be one of the most physical games, hasn't it? Without, without protection, I add. Yeah. I'm told by some reliable sources in strength and conditioning and performance circles that it is the hardest sport or to navigate by far mm. what's demanded of the athletes. Yeah. So what, what's the, what's the culture around and, and beliefs around pain and injury? Well, it's what you'd expect. It's a, an Australian sport and only played professionally in Australia. And so it's what we talked about before Richmond that just get on with it. And, um, yeah, unless unless your your foot is obviously pointing in a different direction, or um, you know there's a big crack in your arm and you can visibly see it, that uh, yeah you should be fine and see the strap it up and get back out there. Or um, yeah, if you've pulled a muscle, we better be able to see it bleeding on Monday. Otherwise, you're a bit of a pussy. <laughs> so yeah, so now I mean, that, as a as a coach now and. You know, maybe coach stroke. No, care is probably a strong, a strong word. But but I know you're a care. You know, you do care. You care in lots of ways. Um, you know, have you got different insights into that now? Is it a, a more nuanced approach to players and and what they might be describing that they're feeling in that way? Yeah, and you know, this is all interwoven in everything that we're trying to develop and you know part of our project last year was to build out a proper performance department that allowed us to get you know the right medical services to the players it was a little bit roughshod and ad hoc and so to formalize those processes and and have the right people around the players for injuries or they're just they have some sort of pain in general you know again we we rush to amend the physiological but there's so many more elements to it as you know there's the psychological side of it there's the nutritional side of it you know the most important part of an injury could be the diet of the player 
um, and you know their recovery can rely on having their diet right. And so, you know, a lot of things like that were missing for us. Obviously, this is not revolutionary for professional environments in Australia, but for a you know a, a small budget uh, team, you know, of elite amateurs in Canada. Um, we wanted to put that in place and, and that really came from what you were talking about. It's this, how do we actually care? Mm. Um, I, don't, I don't want to ever be accused of saying that I cared and not actually demonstrating that. And so there are things, yeah, there are things that we can do from an injury perspective, definitely to, to help the players and, and help them understand what's going on. Because again, we've been conditioned into... I know you know this just pointing at something and be like this hurts mm-hmm. and and that's really that's we just go and fix that thing yeah no absolutely and, and going back to what we we're saying before about you know the the person first you know it's it's the person that feels pain not not the not the body part and perhaps they're more vulnerable to injury because of some stuff going on behind the scenes. You know, maybe they're not sleeping well, maybe there's a relationship issue. Uh, maybe their diet is, is poor. I mean, usually there's a, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of, a bunch of things, which kind of highlights the importance of, of knowing your players and having this kind of open forum where they can come and, and, and talk to you um, about what's, what's going on in their life. You know, you might notice their performance isn't great or they're not as chirpy as usual. And if, if you did notice that, what, what kinds of things would you do? Well, yeah, I mean, it's really, so my biggest learning in coaching recently has been these, these elements of it's, it's often not that symptom, so, and that goes for everything uh, that goes for, you know, skill development as well is often, you know, people will describe not being able to perform a particular skill. And obviously in Aussie rules, they're learning quite new skills. And, but, you know, sometimes it's just the fact that they don't want, you know, we talk about kicking a drop punt, so kicking an end over end punt. Well, sometimes they just don't want to kick the ball. That's the actual problem. Not that they can't execute the skill. It's that they have this uh, social fear that if they don't execute it properly, they'll get yelled at or they'll, they'll be removed from the ground, be taken off by their coach or whatever it may be. And so it's not that they can't do the skill. It's that, they, that they're fearful of uh, the ridicule. So really what I'm trying to find with everyone, regardless of whether they're injured, regardless of whether they're developing skills, regardless of whether they yeah, appear less boisterous in the room, it's like, let's try to get to the root of what's going on. Now, it's not, they're not always going to tell you, uh, I don't need to be, I don't need to know everything. Um, but, you know, often if you set the right environment for people, they'll say, yeah, look, I'm, I've got some stuff going on. Uh, uh, you know, it, I need a break or I need, um, I need some leeway today or don't ride me today. And so you're trying to generate those, those feedback loops so um, the thing that I would add as well would be this is really about creating an environment. It's not about coming to me. I don't care who these people go to, who our players go to. There needs to be someone there for them that cares. And often that's not me because of power dynamics. And, you know, as a head coach, you just have to understand that people might be hesitant to come to you because of your title. And so that's what I mean about creating an environment. It's like, well, it could be an assistant coach. It could be our sports psych. It could be our dietitian. They might say something to someone else and not necessarily come to me. And that needs to be okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, just just going back to one of your other three points that was about recruitment, sort of tying it in with this. Um, and, and, you know, choosing or, or picking a player to join your your team your your outfit it's not necessarily a completely realistic example but you know you've got one player who he's got he's a major talent but yet there's a few issues around the attitude and maybe not being a team player versus the guy who works hard team player but doesn't have the same the same talent have you got a view on on who you would who you would pick in that situation 
Yeah, I do. I I spent a lot of time weeding out the players that won't buy into some sort of team agreement. And um, yeah, I understand the attractiveness of it. And I think actually there is a time and a place for that, uh, for adding someone like that. But we're really lucky in that we have enough guys that will buy in and do want to buy in and do want to be part of something bigger than themselves. Um, now it's entirely situational. Um, you know, if, if I was running a basketball team, it would probably be a different scenario. Um, but we're really lucky in Aussie rules in that when, because you have 18 players, there's generally not one player that can have such a dramatic impact on the game because they're one of 36 on the field. And so, yes, there is good players that stand out, but generally they can't literally win you the game like LeBron James can. Um, and so there is, the, the whole really needs to work when it's 18 aside. Yeah. And so we're, we're really lucky in that space in that we can kind of afford to distribute that talent across all 18 rather than, yeah, on the basketball court when you're one of 10 and you're LeBron James versus, you know, who's still at 40, whatever he is, looks like he's playing amongst kids. It's really a different scenario there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But for yeah. me, it's always the, the team guys. They're, they're the multipliers. Yeah. Have, have you got any tips for coaches that might be having to deal with someone who's, who's not playing not playing ball so to speak yeah you i mean going back to what we've talked about is it, it's never really that you know it's never really the the team or the game like they're there because they they want to play generally and they love playing just like everyone else and even if they display selfish behaviors they, they want to be a part of something. But often there's much larger factors at play behind the scenes. Um, your upbringing, yeah, childhood trauma, trauma in general, grieving, uh, you know, or they, they haven't had role models in their lives, whatever it may be. There's usually something else or a multitude of other things that are stopping them or, or the reasons for their behaviour. So, um it's it's tough but what you're trying to get to is yeah what's the real reason that this person is is acting like this and again they 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 love they clearly love basketball they clearly love Aussie rules football they clearly love football soccer um because they keep showing up so you can tick that box it's you know we're, we're always talking about you know players aren't you see it on Twitter all the time, coaches bemoaning players' motivation and stuff, but they keep showing up. So they're motivated. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, there's, there's something else there. And, you know, this is tough because, again, we haven't been conditioned to explore and dig around in these areas. And so it's tough to know where to start. But, um, yeah, often something as simple as, like, tell me about, tell me about your background, where you're from, you know, tell me about your parents, tell me about your, your brothers and sisters, start there, get them talking about themselves and see if you can identify some, some pain points. Cause yeah, it's often not the teammates or the game or the coach or anything like that. Yeah. But again, you know, that, that demonstrates your, you know, your, your person first approach, you know, you, you're tapping into who they are before thinking about well what's going on in in the game and and that that authenticity will will inevitably come out and and if that person's going to open up then that's the most likely or the greatest chance of that happening is if you create such an environment well here's an example for you that i, I wrote about and it's actually from michael calvin's book um living on the volcano and in in that he writes about Brennan Rogers when, when Rogers is at Liverpool and there's a, a, an anecdote about Mario Balotelli 
So Balotelli is seen as Rogers' worst buy at Liverpool. Now, I think four goals in a year and then he's sold. But what Rogers comes to the table with is, look, you can't treat Mario like everyone else. He's like, here's his background. He's, um, I think his family are uh, from Ghana. I think um, it, he's one of four children and was the only one that was given up for adoption. That's all you need to know. Mm. So now you know that, so this is, this is an outsider. This is someone who as a child, everything that's been displayed to him has been, you're an outsider. Um, he's, he's growing up in Italy. He's black. Um, he's, he's from an immigrant family and his family are, are still off, um, as far as I'm aware, living like a normal family. And you, unfortunately, Mario, you're the one given up for adoption. So, so he, to me, he's someone who's trying to find his place in the world as, as an outsider. Now, extremely talented, but when you start to say he's uncoachable, he's this, he's that, that just further reinforces that you're an outsider. You're not welcome here either. You weren't welcome in your family. You're not welcome at Liverpool Football Club. And so you start to just reinforce this, um, this message to this young man. That's what he is, not a footballer, young man who's trying to find his place in the world like we all are, you're, you're an outsider to us. So now uh, it didn't work out. Brendan Rogers, who's like, you know, a social worker, wasn't able to, to get through to him. But, uh, you know, it's, it's still the right approach. You've got to treat him like a young man who has different circumstances to most of us. I mean, that's, that's a great example. And if you think about the number of, of kids in schools, I forget the name of the, the there's an effect, isn't there, that the, the, the kid will behave in the way that, that you kind of think they're going to behave and, you, you know, you project those messages and they'll play up to it. Um, it's, a, it's a well-known effect and the name has gone from me. But, but that happens in, in all walks of life, right across the ages in sport, in business, and, and such like, you know, people kind of get labeled as this, this particular, um, you know, type of person who's going to behave in a particular way. Um, and instead of seeing a, a person, you know, with a past that's informing how they are now, but also they have strengths, they have resources, they, they have things to offer, they can contribute if you give them the space and the opportunity to do it. There might be a few hiccups, but you know, if you create that, it's much more likely. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing to, to also note here is that this is, yeah, this is like the human journey, right? Like we're all trying to figure this out. It's not like it's this group of ragamuffins that's, you know, Mario Balotelli and all his mates that are, you know, out partying. We point fingers at them and say, we're the normal ones and you guys are, but the reality is we're all trying to figure this stuff out. We're all, trying to figure out who we are and why we're here and where do we belong. And so when you look at it like that, you know, they're not too dissimilar to us. They just haven't found that path yet. Uh, whereas some of us maybe think we have. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. How do we know? But I mean, you mentioned his upbringing. I mean, is, was there anything in your upbringing that, that you think informs the way that you go about things now, the way you think? Yeah, I actually, I wrote about this again. I've shared quite a bit um, of my story in, in the tough stuff. And yeah, I mean, um, single mum for me, you know, dad left when I was two or three. You know, mum was a military uh, kid, you know, moved all around the world, Los Angeles, Malaysia, um, you know, the outback in Australia, um, you know, parents both dead when she's 16, goes on to raise two kids, become a top salesperson at Kraft Foods, you know. Uh, and so that was what was demonstrated to me. And so, you know, uh, in the book, I describe it as that's probably the most important thing that you can know about me because uh, that informs what I think of as hard work and what I'm willing to do to succeed. It was demonstrated to me every day that, you know, my mum didn't finish high school and was orphaned at 16, you know, and she was born in 1956. So she's, you know, 1972. 
So as a 16-year-old in the 70s, she had no parents, no responsibilities, no high school education and had to uh, make it work. And so um, how, what lengths do you think I will go to to make it work Um, and to figure things out? Like that's what's been displayed to me. And, And so, yeah, I mean, that's what kind of guides, you know, who I've become. Yeah. Um, yeah interesting you say i was i was watching um an interview with uh, well brian johnson the singer of acdc was interviewing dave grohl and and he was talking about his mum and the fact that that she brought him up um and she's she's actually written a book about that and some other things i haven't i haven't read it this is just something i watched the other day and 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 he was saying that she interviewed some other you know, um, st- you know, pop stars, uh, rock stars, and, and they all have these sort of similar, similar backgrounds where they'd been raised by their mum, single mum, who'd worked hard a number of jobs, but still made for a happy home and they felt loved and, and supported. Um, and, and he sort of concluded by saying that you know, in terms of our kids, it's, it's just, just give them support give them the love and then just, just let them do the things that they, they want to do. Um, and, and that just really sort of resonated and it sounds similar in, in your case. Yeah. I mean, we never felt like we were going without, you know, or, or anything. We always had what we needed and yeah, it was a, you know, certainly a simple life and we never flew anywhere. We drove everywhere and all that sort of stuff, just like everyone else. And, um, but yeah, I mean, you, you don't really know much different as a kid, but it becomes more profound as you get to, you know, my age where, you know, I would have been the age of my mum when I can start to remember things, you know, eight, nine, 10. And so you start to really reflect back and be like, oh yeah, this is actually really meaningful to my development. And, and yeah, I mean, we, we had all the love and connection in the world and that was the main thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, Absolutely. Absolutely. Sounds like she was a real inspiration or is a really inspiration for you? Yeah, I think parents should be, uh, you know, I, I love seeing videos of, you know, athletes and musicians and, and influential people. And when they get asked who their heroes are, they don't say, you know, the lead singer of ACDC, they say, Oh, it's my mum yeah. or my dad. Um, there's one of, you know, Tom Brady answers his dad's his hero and a, uh, when a young kid asks him, you know, at a Super Bowl press conference and things like that, and it kind of brings a tear to your eye, to your eye, and that's the way it should be, Richmond. Like they're the people that you can see and touch and feel, and you know what they've been through, and you know the impact they've had. Um, yeah, you're you're right. You're absolutely right. Because when again, going back to that interview with Dave Grohl, when he said that, you know, then I, my ears really kind of pricked up to that. If he'd have said, as you said, you know, some other star, you'd be like, yeah, okay, we've all got our kind of star sort of heroes, that sort of thing. Um, but but you know that that's real. And and you know, he then went on to say that that um, you know when he could afford it and what he'd done so well. He, you know, he then he then looks after his mum. He he took her on tour. He said, you know, she's retiring. She doesn't need to go on a cruise ship. I'll take her on tour. She can come on tour with us. And she went on tour with them, with the Foo Fighters. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, that's just yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's class. Yeah. <laughs> so who who I mean, who else inspires you in in the coaching world? Who do you draw upon? I mean, I, I look everywhere. I, I don't know if I have one necessarily, but I, I really like coaches. This is really everyone, coaches, writers, you know, anyone in my domain that I pay interest to it, it is really, yeah, I think they are definitely people first, but I think they're different thinkers. I'm really, I gravitate towards people that don't just, talk about the normal way and and are willing to push boundaries and yeah so you know there's there's quite a few coaches like that um you know the kind of saying oh it's not really like that and they're willing to challenge norms i'm really attracted to that way of thinking yeah and then that's probably displayed in my work as well it's that i 
I mean, my first book was called Where Others Won't. And it's literally about <laughs> how to think differently and create competitive advantages in places that others can't see. And then, yeah, I've gone and written a book about emotions in, in head coaching. So you can probably see that I'm geared that way. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. And there you are kind of supporting um, an, an Arsenal top. Uh, what, what's the story there? Well, I obviously haven't read my book uh, they've just gone and uh, uh, built the built the wrong way. Uh, no, but uh, yeah, big Arsenal fan. Um, there weren't many games displayed on television in Australia when I was growing up, but getting a being able to see Dennis Bergkamp and Thierry Henry run around it was pretty infectious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've, and you've stuck to it and you're sporting that jumper proudly. What do you think uh, is happening this season? Uh, there's a, it's a bedrock season for, for the Gunners. I think it's, um, <laughs> if you follow my, my tweet timeline, you can kind of see my frustration grow that uh, the kids didn't, play as much as they should have right from when Mikel Arteta stepped in as head coach. I think that was the opportunity rather than, uh, and again, I know there's, there's different pressures, um, but it was pretty clear that the way to go was to pump games into all these young kids and, and allow them to play together. Whereas I kind of went back to the David Louise, um, you know, the older players, Xhaka and, and these guys that, certainly need to be around and show the way, but you can just see when, when Martinelli and Smith Rowe and Saka and uh, Tierney and, you know, all these young guys, when they play together, you can see the joy of the game. It literally jumps out of the screen at you and there's, there's cohesion and they know how to play together and they're smiling and they're, um, there's intensity. And I haven't seen that in an Arsenal team since kind of those glory days. And, uh, yeah, I was a little bit frustrated that they kind of went back to, to the older guys. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it didn't work. And now they've been forced to, to pump more games into the kids. And I just hope they stay the path there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's an interesting time, isn't it? You know, these guys have been so used to playing in, in front of crowds and then playing in, a, in an empty stadium. That, that must have an effect in terms of the you know, that stimulation they would have, would have got uh, both supportive and, and um, you know, the opposition crowd and, and all the rest of it. Um, and who, who knows, who knows how that's, that's all going to pan out. Um, any, any predictions for this, this season? Uh, no, other than it's a weird season and uh, I just, hope everyone remains safe and they don't push it too far and uh you know start to become detrimental to either themselves or or society as a whole i think there's you know we always talk about bigger bigger picture and bigger than yourself and you know, football is part of that is you know we all obviously love watching on tv and i i hope they can continue to play but there's something bigger at play here that, that we also need to factor in and and uh, if it needs to stop for a couple of weeks, I think we can all deal um, and, and not, uh, you know, make people sick with a you know, deadly virus. So, yeah, again, you know, keeping that, keeping that perspective for the, uh, the bigger picture. And don't get me wrong. I love football like the, the next person, but uh, you know, I can, I can turn on the PlayStation and play FIFA for a couple of weeks rather than, you know, have to watch on television and, and uh, yeah, you know, again, for athletes, especially there's, there's all sorts of implications with a, something that impacts the lungs so dramatically as this uh, virus seems to. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's not just the knock on effect. It's not just the, you know, I'm young and you know, I'll be fine and all the knock on effect to, to older people. Um, yeah. It's uh, yeah, potentially career ending for, for a lot of players. And so, yeah, there's always that to keep in the back of their mind. And I, and I hope they do. Yeah. yeah. It's more important than the money. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and closer to home, um, how, how are you managing things there with the, with the team and what, what, what are the prospects? Yeah, so we were able to get two training camps in towards the end of last year when things were uh, you know, quite good in, uh, in Ontario and British Columbia. And so, yeah, we were able to get a team together last year. We obviously didn't get our tournament in but we're looking at a, a tournament next year um, that will be created from scratch. Uh, obviously, a, a lot of different countries uh, eager to get back into it, you know, probably towards the end of the year, August, September timeframe. So yeah. might be over your way for, for some games, which ah. would be nice Yeah, uh, be. over in Europe, which would be great. And, but yeah, I mean, we've given the players time off until february uh you know everyone's antsy to get back into it but again this there's great opportunities for people to get away do something new learn something new spend time with their families and uh, and just relax a little bit rather than us you know giving them running programs over the winter it's it's winter in canada yeah. Richmond it's uh you you can't go outside and have it be above zero and ice on the ground so you know we just relax a little bit um we can get them ready to play in about eight to 12 weeks so um once we have those games in place we'll start to to get back to footy but yeah awesome awesome well listen um it's been brilliant to dig into, you know, your approach and, and what you're up to. You know, I love your approach. You know that. And um, where, where can people pick up on what you're, what you're up to and uh, when do you book out and all that kind of thing? Yeah, I've tried to simplify everything. So everything about me, book, podcasts, uh, background on me is all just at codyroyal.com. And yeah, I'm most active on social media, on Twitter and LinkedIn. So you can find me there. And, and I do use them to talk to people. It's not just uh, promotion. I love those forums for discourse and, you know, finding people like yourself. And obviously we met separately, but, you know, there's, there's so many great people that add so much value, you know, on Twitter and, and LinkedIn. And so, yeah, I love getting on there and talking and learning from them and bouncing ideas off people. So you can find me there as well. Excellent, excellent. And, and when's the book coming? February 1st. Ah. It's called the, the Tough Stuff, Seven Hard Truths About Being a Head Coach. Awesome. Why seven? That's a good number. Ah. It's a common, there's quite a few that have gone for seven. Three's too short, isn't it? Three, that'd be like half a book, so seven. <laughs> Three's three's too short. There's there's actually a there's a rhyme and a reason behind most of that stuff, right? You, you start to think through. I mean, six. You you wouldn't pick up a bit, book that had six hard truths. Yeah, six truths, no. You know? no. Whereas seven, I don't know what it is about. It's whether the, just the way that it's pronounced or the way that it's displayed. I don't know what it is, but yeah, I I, I believe there's some thought behind it from a publishing perspective it's like no, no seven's a good number for a book no it sounds good sounds good i look forward to that cody it's been awesome thanks so much for your time um and uh, we will catch up again soon and, and so hopefully see you over here in the not too distant future yeah mate looking forward to it thanks richmond cheers take care see ya